Heavenly Father, as we come to think about your word today, we pray that you'll bless us, refresh us, teach us, renew us, that we might be who you call us to be in Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, finally, after a long journey, we come to the final instalment the last chapter in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the 16th. And although it might read a little bit like a postscript to the letter, because it seems a whole lot lighter than the weightier doctrinal matters that we've been looking at in recent weeks concerning order in the church and the doctrine of the resurrection, it really isn't a PS at all nor does it only contain matters of no importance. So while it's true to say that chapter 16 is not about theological matters, it does address practical matters, all of which relate to us in the 21st century as much as they would have in the 1st century. Now these practical matters might seem an odd thing, for Paul to bring up. After all, at the end of chapter 15, Paul had reached a real climax when he reached that real high note of glory when he quoted the saying, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But from that high point, the next verse, the opening line of chapter 16 is much more down to earth. Be sure to take up the collection. And here are my travel plans. When you think about it, coming back to reality with a bit of a bump, back to the mundane after you've soared with the Apostle Paul to contemplate the glories of the resurrection, well, that's a helpful thing. It's a good way to end the letter. Because we don't live in the glories of the resurrection, do we? We live on earth. We live in the regular and the usual activities of here and now. And although Paul wanted to give his readers great hope in the resurrection, the fact is, it's still ahead of us. And we need help to see how the glory that awaits us ought to affect the lives we live from day to day, the day-to-day realities as we struggle along as a local church like the church at Corinth. So there are four things to cover. You'll see them on the outline of the reverse side of the pew sheet. Hopefully let's learn something together about our responsibilities from this chapter. First, Paul teaches in the chapter about principles for faithful stewardship. In summary form, verses 1 to 4 teach that our giving, our giving to God, which is part of what we call stewardship, that is our financial giving, is something that the Corinthians were taught to put into practice to do it well. Verse 1 and 2 address our hip pockets. And these verses are just two of over 2,000 references in the scriptures to money and to giving. 
When I first came to be your minister back in 2007, I was asked point blank if I would ever preach on the topic of stewardship. I said I would, but qualified the answer with this explanation when the text demanded it. And we're in that position this morning. The text demands it. Of course, there will always be those who say that the church and its preachers are always talking about and asking for money. And they're partially right. Because money is an essential aspect of being a church. But the main reason is that we do that, we tackle the topic, because stewardship, especially financial stewardship, is an important part of our response to the gospel. It's an important part of ongoing discipleship. It affects all of us, that is, every part of us, including the hip pocket, the bank account. So here we find Paul giving instructions about giving. He's particularly thinking, though, about raising money, giving a collection for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem. But the principles he raises apply to us in terms of regular, systematic stewardship. There are four things he says. First he says our giving is to be systematic and regular. His instruction was that each one of the Corinthians should set aside something every week on the first day of the week, the day the believers gathered together. On that day, the Corinthians were to come expecting to put their gifts together, not thinking, oh, my pockets are empty, I've got nothing to give. No, being prepared for that. The second principle, he taught that our giving should be voluntary. And there is no thought here that Paul is seeking to uh, get personal gain for himself or lord it over the Corinthians because uh, they were under his care that they must also not give a certain amount. 10%, the tithe, was the Old Testament requirement. The New Testament tells us that we're under grace and we're free to give more than 10% as the Lord enables us. One thing on this ought to be clear, under the law, the people were to give 10% as a requirement The onus is on us to show by our giving that we are so grateful for the grace and love that has released us from that requirement, from being under the law, to be under grace, that our voluntary giving ought to reflect the way in which Jesus gave all of himself for us and not 10% of himself. Thirdly, Paul taught our giving is to be proportionate. Each one ought to consider themselves a steward of what God has given them. And the believer is encouraged to this as he may prosper, or as some other versions put it the other way round, as God has prospered him. If we recognise that it is God who is responsible for the degree of prosperity that we enjoy, and if we are grateful for that, and then our response ought to be proportional to the degree of prosperity we enjoy with what he's given us. 
Remember? The widow, the two copper coins, how Jesus declared that that widow contributed so much more than all the rich who put in out of their abundance all that they had, but she put in what really counted, even though it was less. The passage doesn't tell us how much we ought to give. Paul says that it's something we have to determine between us and God. A helpful rule of thumb might also be found in the fact that the proportion we set aside for God does not have to remain fixed. The government operates that way. Uh, the more you make, the higher tax bracket you fall into. So with us in the Lord's work. The greater the degree of prosperity, if we find ourselves more prosperous, so also the greater ought be our proportion of giving. Fourth, Paul taught that our giving should spring from proper motives. He was concerned, Paul was concerned, that his coming to Corinth might motivate some to give out of the wrong motives. He was, after all, their apostle, their founding father in the Lord, their dynamic teacher. So people might be giving because of these factors, seeking to influence him or perhaps give out of an emotional response. Paul wanted to avoid all this and advocated instead that believers grow in their sense of appreciation and love for what God has done for them and that each one give thoughtfully, consistently, without coercion or emotion, without appeal, without threats, without power plays or lecturing from the pulpit. And that's true giving, isn't it? When we give because we want to give, and we ought always pray that God and not the manipulative appeals of men will lead us as we give. This is the New Testament pattern for all who seek to bring their hearts and their hip pockets to worship and please the Lord in this important matter. Second, verses 5 to 12, uh, Paul speaks of his plans for future ministry. Principles of financial stewardship, plans for future ministry. While the principles of giving are fixed and are constant and can be relied upon, Paul's plans, on the other hand, well, they were a bit fluid and changeable. Uh, From verse 5 onward, Paul writes about what you might call certain indefinites. In other words, his plans are very much in the air and God permitting. He might come and stay with them in Corinth. He might even remain on through the winter. Then again, Timothy might arrive at Corinth when again it might be Apollos. What was certain was that nothing was certain. Paul was ever ready to be on the go, but always ready to change his plans as the spirit directed and the need required. So one thing we've learned through this letter of Paul to the Corinthians is that it matters little who does the ministry. The important thing is that the ministry gets done, not who the servant is. That's why Paul was happy to be open to the leading of the Spirit as to where God wanted him and why we need to be prepared for God to move his chess-piecing players around, his 
workers, to reassign them, to send them off in directions that he chooses, that he makes clear. See, that's the gospel pattern for ministry. God moves his workers a bit like chess pieces into the places that he calls them to serve. That's not to say we're not to make plans about what may lay ahead, but it is to say that all our plans must be made under the rule of the Lord. History suggests that Paul never made it back to Corinth and the plans that he made were frustrated. You can read it in 2 Corinthians 1 and 2, how the Corinthians began to speak ill of him and because he said he was coming, but he didn't come. But even then he made it clear that he was simply obeying the Lord's will and so the matter ought to be with us. Make plans by all means, knowing that they must be subject to his final say. All our plans, whether they be for ministry or where we live or holiday or travel or work or what we do with our lives, these are among all the things that God has the final say in. James tells us that much. Chapter 4. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Third, this is 15 to 18, Paul writes about partnership together with fellow workers. His partnership with fellow workers. And he does that by directing us to these fellow servants. Timothy, Apollos, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaicus, Aquila and Prisca. Prisca. First, Paul tells us of two men, uh, Timothy and Apollos, and we note that they have very different personalities and gifts. Timothy was a gifted young man whose problem was a certain lack of courage in doing what he'd been called to do. Apollos was notable, on the other hand, for his eloquence and his preaching skills. Both of them different to each other and both ready to go wherever God called them to serve. Timothy's fearfulness did not disqualify him. Apollos' lack of understanding at times did not disqualify him. Paul tells us of three men, Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus, who were all locals from the church at Corinth. They had visited Paul at Ephesus with the intention of refreshing his spirit and according to Paul they succeeded in their purpose indicating by their desire to serve that they were men in whom the gospel had found a home and men whom Paul held out as respected leaders who should be imitated because their leadership was a natural outflow of their service. This reminds us too that a constant in the Christian life is that service to others is what makes any believer an example to be imitated. Service to others. Paul makes no mention of wealth, their social standing, 
their personality traits, their education, any natural ability or attribute, the qualification, servant heart. And Paul commended these men, indicating they ought to be respected and imitated. And we've seen how the church in Corinth was competitive and arrogant at times. They often got confused over who they were following. But Paul identified the faithful ones who were qualified to be in positions of leadership, who consistently exhibited the qualities of servanthood that set them apart among the saints. And the last two people are husband and wife. This is 19 and 20. Aquila and Prisca, often also called Priscilla, who are always found in the scriptures ministering together as husband and wife and are a constant example to us how marriage and ministry can be joined. They themselves were educated, they were well taught in the faith, but the the point Paul highlights about them here is that their home was always open and the church met in their home. This is a pattern about them that we see. Paul lived and worked with them in Corinth. In Ephesus, the church met in their home and so also in Rome. As these facts remind us of the way in which the gospel spreads, it's not just the upfront ministry that does it all, does it? Much of gospel progress happens when homes are open or parks or coffee shops when willing workers take what God has given them and say, God, you can use this. We're fellow beggars sharing where the bread can be found, in, case, in this case, the bread that lasts for eternity. In a world where there is much brokenness and pain, the hope of the gospel makes all the difference in people's lives. Consider what you might do to make that difference. Then fourthly, in closing the chapter, let's note Paul's prayers for further witness. In closing, his closing words in verses 13 and 14 and verses 21 to 24, Paul issues a challenge for his readers and also directs them to the means by which those challenges should be met. The challenges he left them were these, to remain true to the faith by being on the alert, to stand firm in the faith by being brave and strong, but above all, to do everything in the faith in love. And what are the means to do these these things? Well, like most of his letters, Paul so directed them not just to his love for them, but the grace of God that was with them, tying together the opening verses of the whole book, which began addressing those called to be saints, sanctified in Christ Jesus, concluding with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Such blessings make beautiful bookends, to the start and the finish of the letter that was written to a church in such trouble. 
all their waywardness, all their selfishness, all their disorder, all their infighting, all their wrong attitudes. It's all within the context. Called to be sanctified in Christ Jesus. May the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. See, grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus is sufficient, always sufficient for salvation. It's the only way we can be saved. But it's also sufficient for service for each of us individually and together as a church. We need grace to continue on. Grace for further ministry. Grace for fellowship with one another. And such bookends of grace remind us that we are only part of the church of Jesus in the first place because of grace and we can only remain that way and continue on and be effective because of grace. So we reach the end of the letter and the question to be asked is, what have we learned? Well, we learned many things about the church in Corinth. We learned that they hardly reached any heights that we should aspire to. But in noting that, we also have learned negatively what not to be like and what dangers will keep us from being the holy people Paul held out to us that we ought to be at the start of the letter. There are many things to guard against. 16 chapters, here's 16 points. Let's guard against being divided over personalities, as per chapter 1. Against giving the wrong emphasis to the gospel's preacher, sorry, the gospel's content, no, had it right the first time. Giving the wrong emphasis to the gospel's preacher over against the gospel's content. In chapters 2 to 4. Let's guard against adopting the ways of the world and despising church discipline as per chapters 5 and 6. Let's guard against not allowing the gospel to affect our relationship choices. Chapter 7. Or being stumbling blocks to others. Chapter 8. Or ignoring the sacrificial example of the Apostle Paul. It's per chapter 9. Or failing to heed the Old Testament warnings about idolatry. As per chapter 10. Or creating divisions across the gender divide and social class as per chapter 11. Or failing to act like the body of Christ and actually abusing our gifts, as per chapter 12. Or putting more emphasis on gifts than we should on love, as per chapter 13. Or allowing worship to become disorderly and dishonouring to God, as per chapter 14, or failing to understand the hope of the resurrection, as per chapter 15. And then, as we've seen this morning, failing to note the instructions he gives about giving, 
about making plans without reference to the Lord, about failing to appreciate fellow workers in the Lord and attempting to do all things without relying on the grace of the Lord Jesus. These things, these warnings come to us from the book to make up the picture of what the church, what we ought to be, as much as what the church of Corinth was called to be. And if we're not putting these things into practice, we'll not be the kind of church we ought to be. For the baggage that we bring from our old lives, like was discovered at Corinth, the divisions and the boasting and the pride and the sinful ways which exist among us, as they do in every church to some degree, will swallow up what witness to the gospel there is. So it's my hope and prayer that somewhere in these 31 messages I've prepared and conveyed to you on the letter of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth, that this has somehow, somewhere come through to your ears and heart. See, if these believers could make a go of it in Corinth, having come together in the first place, called by God through the gospel in that pagan city, sinful city, and if they could be that somewhat imperfectly, with the grace of God accompanying them and with the help of the Apostle Paul who loved them. So we too can prove to be faithful people in this culture, in this time, in this city by doing what they were taught to do, to live out the gospel and serve Christ who called us to be his by his grace. And you know what? To do that, we need grace. So let's pray and ask him for it. Lord, as we consider the high calling of what it means to be the people of God and what it meant for the Corinthians in their context, in that first century world, we confess that we come up short in so many ways. So many of the attitudes and actions that we display towards one another are wrong and we need a gospel adjustment in our thinking about the gospel itself and about our responsibility to each other. Then we could start thinking about our responsibility to the world in which we live, this city of Bendigo, which knows not what you have done through the cross for your people. So equip us, we pray. Equip us each time we open the scriptures. But equip us so that having read through the whole book, having thought upon it together, we might be equipped. Open our eyes, Lord, for the work that you've called us to do, the ministry we are to have, 
the service that we must render through Christ as we do that because he called us into the race and because he keeps us to the very end. We thank you for the letter. We thank you for everything we've learned. We thank you for your blessings upon us in this way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.